ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you. Once you find one you like, you can then book an appointment with them online instantly. In ZocDoc, there are tens of thousands of doctors, and each one comes with real reviews from real patients. Go to ZocDoc.com 20K and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then, find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc.com 20K. ZocDoc.com 20K. Previously on 20,000 Hertz. On May 23rd, 1933, a baby is born in Queens, New York City. Electronic music wasn't nearly as codified as it is today, as it is today. If Bob Moog was the Thomas Edison of synths, then Don Buchla was Nikola Tesla Tesla. Don Buchla didn't believe in keyboards. This West Coast approach was more about putting musicians out in the middle of the musical wilderness. The age of synthesized music had arrived. As we explored in our last episode, electronic music used to be really hard to make. You either had to use a computer the size of a building, or you had to cut up magnetic tape and manipulate it in strange ways. But then, in the mid-1960s, two inventors changed everything. Their names were Bob Moog and Don Buchla. Bob's synth was simply called the Moog, while Don named his creation the Buchla 100. The interface on Bob Moog's synth was really easy to understand, which made it perfect for pop music. Bands like the Beatles, Yes, and Pink Floyd used a Moog on some of their biggest hits. The Buchla 100 was definitely harder to play, but it could create some really unique sounds. That's 20,000 Hertz producer Andrew Anderson. This synthesizer was interactive in a way that was totally new. It was almost like playing with a live collaborator. But since it was so unpredictable, the Buchla 100 was mostly used by experimental composers and didn't show up much in pop music. These two approaches came to be known as East Coast and West Coast synthesis. Bob Moog created the East Coast approach, which was familiar and accessible. The East Coast approach really did wind up fitting more into the lineage of the evolution of musical instruments up until that point. That's music journalist and synth historian Ryan Gaston. Whereas the West Coast approach was like trying to throw a wrench into the evolution of of musical instruments and do something completely different. Before long, fans of the two approaches were arguing about which was best. It was like Windows versus Mac, but for synthesizers. With Bob Moog as Bill Gates. Out of the two of them, Bob Moog was a more straight and button-up shirt kind of guy. He was a trained engineer and Don Buchla as Steve Jobs. Don Buchla did not grow up in that sort of academic environment. Buchla was very much involved in the countercultural movement of the 1960s and was hanging out with the Grateful Dead and other musicians and groups like this. But while Don was hanging out with rock bands on the West Coast, Bob was living a quieter life in North Carolina with his family. And his record collection was very different from Don's. 
he loved bluegrass music. That's Michelle Moog Kusa, Bob's daughter. He really enjoyed gospel music. I remember he and my mom taking us to African-American churches just so we could listen to gospel music. When he wasn't listening to bluegrass and gospel, Bob was putting in long hours in his workshop. He spent his whole day out there working, and that work day was very long. Plus, he always went out and worked for a few hours after dinner. For Bob's kids, his workshop had an almost magnetic pull. It was kind of mysterious because my father rarely talked about his work, and so we didn't have a big understanding of exactly what was happening out there. The only time that I would go out to the shop was to either go and get him and let him know it was dinner time or to give him a kiss goodnight. And although he was always welcoming, it was kind of an understanding that you did not linger. He was extremely detail-oriented. You know, he used to say to me all the time, Michelle, get it right the first time. As a result, sometimes he worked on projects for decades until they were ready. He considered the multi-touch sensitive keyboard his biggest contribution to the world of music. Starting in 1971, he spent 25 years developing it. It was a keyboard that was touch sensitive in five different ways. A regular piano keyboard is only sensitive in one way. The harder you hit the key, the louder the note is. But Bob's keyboard could do so much more than that. Depending on how you touch the key, It would play a different sound, add vibrato, or even change the pitch of the note. Before long, other companies were making keyboards inspired by Moog's design. Here's a clip of someone playing a Linstrument, a modern-day multi-touch keyboard. All of this is played with just one note on the keyboard. The changes you're hearing are caused by the player applying different pressure and moving their finger to different areas on the same key. Bob's dedication allowed him to make incredible breakthroughs just like this, but it also came at a price. When someone is as hyper-focused on an intellectual and creative mission as my dad was, money is not the important factor, it's just the facilitator for the work. He basically dumped his life savings into his companies. He wasn't being guided always by the bottom line. So his companies did go through a lot of ups and downs. In the early 70s, he actually lost his company. He had to be bought out by a venture capitalist. He had to work for somebody else. He was more and more miserable as that time period went on. Eventually, Bob got so fed up that he left his own company altogether, and he wasn't even allowed to take his name with him. When he left Moog Music in 1977, he was not allowed to use his own name on musical instruments. His life was like a sine wave. There were constant ups and downs. Don Buchla was a very different person. But he experienced many of the same struggles as Bob. first time I met Don, I didn't really know that much about him. (laughs) That's mathematician and musician Amy Radonskaya. Amy was married to Don during the 80s and was also one of his long-term collaborators. 
What I was fascinated by was his very organic connection to electricity. <laughs> it seemed like if you could imagine it, Don could make it. The best things about working with Don was his creativity and inventiveness. He'd be able to build literally anything you wanted. So if I said, you know, oh, I'd like something that would explode at this certain cord, <laughs> he could do that. For a few years, Don and Amy performed together as a duo. Amy played the cello, while Don played one of his synthesizers. They called themselves the Muse and the Fuse. <laughs> yeah, you can guess who was who. At one point, Don had an idea for a duet that was pretty unique. He had this idea that there might be a piece where he didn't actually need to be there, just be the machine as my partner in this duet. So Don built Amy a custom synthesizer, which he called the Silicon Cello. The amazing thing about this synthesizer is that it interacted with you in real time. So I would play something and then it would respond with similar rhythm and a similar pitch groupings. But all of this was done with very simple circuitry, like a tiny breadboard, maybe four inches by three inches or something. So it was a very primitive, but cool, kind of artificially intelligent accompanist, or not even accompanist, but partner. This kind of creativity made Don a joy to work with. Working together was great because we had such complementary backgrounds. But it could also be challenging. The challenges are that he was quite focused. <laughs> if you wanted to change that focus, it was very difficult. Or if you wanted to do things a little differently, it was tricky to steer the project in a different direction. So it's kind of like doing it his way, and usually doing it his way was fine. And then at some point, you want to be in charge. <laughs> this my way or the highway approach was great for inventing new instruments, but it caused him some financial problems. And just like Bob, he also lost the right to use his own name on his instruments. He sold his name once to Fender, and then he'd keep trying these mergers and takeovers, but it just wasn't his nature to be able to work that way. <laughs> no, he just didn't really want to be taken over by a big company. By the late 70s, both Don and Bob had hit hard times. When they started out, they were the only two people making synthesizers you could actually buy. But now, they had dozens of competitors. What's more, they were not legally allowed to make new synthesizers under their own names. And then, something came along that threatened to make their instruments completely obsolete. The digital synthesizer. The first digital synthesizer was released in 1979, and before long, they were everywhere. Because they didn't require a lot of complex parts and wiring, they were much cheaper than either Don or Bob's original analog instruments. They were also a lot easier to use. Rather than wiring patch cables and fine-tuning a bunch of dials and sliders, 
All you had to do was select a preset and start playing. It was great news for musicians who could now afford instruments that previously would have cost a year's salary. It helped inspire whole new genres like synth-pop, electronic dance music, and rap. But it was bad news for analog pioneers like Bob and Don. Not only was there more competition, but the competition was a lot cheaper. But just when things looked their darkest, a trend started to emerge that took Bob and Don's work to a whole new generation. That's coming up after the break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Congratulations to Scott Dexter, who correctly guessed last episode's mystery sound. That's the sound of a Cora being played. This instrument comes from Mali in West Africa. The Cora is made from a large dried gourd that has 21 strings. It's sort of like a combination of a lute and a harp. This particular performance is a duet by Tumani Giabate and his younger brother, Mamadou Giabate, who are both hugely influential musicians and storytellers. And here's this week's mystery sound. If you know what that sound is, submit your guess at the web address mystery.20k.org. Anyone who guesses it right will be entered to win a super soft 20,000 Hertz t-shirt. When I think about hiring, it just seems like it's more work, more stress, and more pressure. But here's how Indeed takes away all that worry. Indeed is the world's number one matching and hiring platform with over 350 million visitors every month. Indeed cuts out the work of hiring with smart AI technology that helps you find the right candidate quickly. It takes the stress out of the process with scheduling, screening, and messaging all in one place. So you know exactly what you're up to in the hiring process because Indeed keeps track of everything for you. Then Indeed relieves the pressure of choosing the right person. That's because their skill tests give you the confidence that you've got the right candidate. So now when you think of hiring, don't think of all those negatives. Just think of Indeed. To try Indeed for yourself with a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility, visit Indeed.com Hertz. Just go to Indeed.com Hertz right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com Hertz. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. NetSuite has simple solutions for complicated business problems. For example, let's say you open a bakery. Before long, your hotcakes are selling like, well, hotcakes. But you keep running out of ingredients. No problem, because not only can NetSuite automate your purchasing so you're never out of stock, but it can also check that your staff have the right training to make those hotcakes to perfection. NetSuite can even handle online orders so your hotcakes can really take off. Having one system handling all of this saves both time and money. And if there's two things we all want more of, it's time and money. Okay, so three things if you include hotcakes. 
That's probably why more than 37,000 businesses have already signed up for NetSuite by Oracle. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash 20k now to take advantage of this offer. That's netsuite.com slash 20k. netsuite.com slash 20k. By the 1980s, the analog instruments created by Don Buchla and Bob Moog were going out of fashion. Digital synthesizers were all the rage. They were cheaper, lighter, and easier to use. And because of this, they were all over 80s pop music. But then, something happened that brought Don and Bob's synthesizers back to the top. In the 1990s, after synthesizers had been predominantly digital for a number of years, there was a desire for modular synthesizers again. And a man named Dieter Dopfer developed what we now refer to as the Eurorack format. Eurorack was based on the modular format that Bob and Don had come up with in the 60s. But with Eurorack, everything was standardized. All the modules connected together using the same cables. They all used the same electrical current. And they had a standard size, so it was easy to put multiple modules together in one case. You could piece together your own custom synthesizer. And since it was standardized, you could use modules from any company. But Eurorack was about more than just standardized parts because these synthesizers actually sounded more authentic and felt more interactive than the digital keyboards that dominated in the 80s. Those keyboard synthesizers had certain design decisions baked into them and couldn't necessarily do everything that you would want a synthesizer to do. Dopefer's Eurorack system made it possible again for people to specify what they wanted their synthesizer to be able to do. Eurorack exploded, with artists like Aphex Twin using one on his track, Window Licker. And a modular Eurorack synthesizer was also used by the Chemical Brothers on their song, Hey Boy, Hey Girl. Eurorack also caused an interesting change in perception. While Bob Moog has always been a household name, Don Buchla was really only known to enthusiasts. Up until then, the only way to get a Buchla-inspired instrument was to just get a Buchla instrument, which were vanishingly rare and valuable. But now many of Don's boldest and, frankly, weirdest ideas were being embraced by a new generation. A number of manufacturers started making designs that were directly inspired by Buchla instruments just because those were instruments that they were familiar with and that they were passionate about. Before long, tons of inventors were inspired to create their own Eurorack modules based on Bob and Don's original concepts. In the present day, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of manufacturers making devices for this one format. 
So today, when you assemble a modular synthesizer, you don't have to go with all Moog or all Buchla or all whoever else. You can kind of mix and match in a pretty unprecedented way. For the first time, Don and Bob's ideas could easily be combined together in one system. Almost every Eurorack modular synthesizer out there contains some mix of ideas from both camps. I think at this point, there's almost equal footing in terms of inspiration from both Moog and Buchla's approaches, which I think is pretty exciting. The East Coast versus West Coast rivalry was officially over. over, over, over. Thanks in part to Eurorack, both Don and Bob saw their businesses get back on track. First, Don bought back the rights to his own name. Then, in the early 2000s, he released new versions of his original 1960s modules. At the same time, Bob was also fighting for the right to use his own name. In 2002, he had to fight a lawsuit to get his name back and had to mortgage his house to be able to do that, but he did succeed in doing that. Bob also decided to revamp one of his classic products, and in 2002 he released the Moog Voyager. Inspired by his original portable synth, the Mini Moog, it was the first synth completely designed by Bob since the 1970s. By this point, Don and Bob had become close. Don and Bob Moog were good friends. I never thought there was any kind of divide at all. Then, at the end of their careers, they actually collaborated on an instrument together, Moog Music's Piano Bar, that Don Buchla originated, but he was not able to finish on his own. So he and my father collaborated and Moog Music put it out as a product. The Piano Bar is a long rectangular tool that fits exactly over your piano. Basically, it turns your analog piano into a digital synthesizer. Although, the fact that Don brought this project to Bob was a bit of a surprise. It's ironic, too, I think, for Don that he was doing something that was keyboard-based. And that wasn't the only time they collaborated. Because Bob and Don actually got up on stage and played a piece together. Using two instruments built by Don. It's a piece called In the Beginning, Etude 2, by composer David Rosenboom. Through the years, East Coast versus West Coast synthesis has often been portrayed as a rivalry. Some podcasts out there might even call it a war. But in reality, that's not quite right. I think in the 1960s, Bukla and Mo kind of had their eyes glancing back over their shoulders at one another, but they certainly had respect for what one another were doing. Of course, there were differences. Bob Moog's instruments reached a huge audience because he wanted them to be accessible. One of the things that made Bob Moog so special is the way he listened. He listened to musicians. I think he was rather fascinated by the ways that musicians would use the tools that he created. He wanted to help expand their sonic universe, and that is exactly what he did. While Don Buchler's instruments redefined what an instrument could actually be. 
Dunn's instruments are a great way of learning about your creativity because there are no rules. When you sit down in front of his source of uncertainty, for example, which has so many possibilities, it's confusing. But with that little box, you can do so much, right? But you have to be willing to put the time in to figure it out and get it to do the things you want. I actually love it. I still find it magical when a machine acts like it's alive and thinking. In the end, you can get to very similar sounds on each instrument. They're not that different from one another, but what is much more starkly different about them is the way that you play the instrument. Are you a person who needs to be able to get to a very specific, predictable, repeatable result? Or are you the kind of person who wants to sit down in front of an instrument and use its unique electronic capabilities in order to do something more than you could do with a piano or an organ or any other instrument. Ultimately, Don and Bob's legacy goes beyond any one instrument, or even the concept of East versus West Coast synthesis. Because their true gift to the world is the countless musicians they've inspired and the millions of people moved by that music. That's Bob Moog's legacy, that he inspired people all over the world, not only through his instruments, but through the music that was made from his instruments. And that inspiration still ripples out. Ripples out. Ripples out. Twenty Thousand Hertz is hosted by me, Dallas Taylor, and produced out of the sound design studios of DeFacto Sound. This episode was written, produced, and reported by Andrew Anderson. It was story edited by Casey Emerling, with help from Grace East. It was sound designed and mixed by Brandon Pratt, Justin Hollis, and Jai Berger. Thanks to our guests Ryan Gaston, Michelle Moog, and Amy Radinskaya. You can find Ryan's deep dives into synthesizer history over at perfectcircuit.com. And if you're interested in Moog, there's actually an entire museum called the Moogseum in North Carolina. To learn more, just tap the link in the show description. Thanks for listening.